Presented by Kamiuk Ukulele Magazine, this is Ukulele Stories. This episode is brought to you by Zenith Music and Romero Creations. Designed by world-renowned luthier Pepe Romero Jr. and multi-Grammy winning ukulele virtuoso Daniel Ho, Romero Creations instruments are truly unique and unlike anything else on the market today. Handcrafted from premium solid tone woods such as Hawaiian koa and spalted mango, models include the now famous Tiny Tenor, as well as the Signature Tenor, ST Concert, XS Soprano, and many more. These are some of the world's finest ukuleles, and they're available now at a fraction of the cost of a custom instrument. Zenith Music is honoured to represent Romero Creations in Australia. Check out zenithmusic.com.au or call 0893831422 for more information. And if you're in Perth, visit Zenith's Claremont store to view and try the full range. Romero Creations, for discerning players around the world. Aloha and welcome to Ukulele Stories. My name is Cameron Murray. Today's very special guest is the incomparable Daniel Ho. The winner of six Grammy Awards, Daniel is a musician's musician, the ultimate professional. His instrumental, Pineapple Mango, has become an international ukulele anthem, covers abound on YouTube, and it's a staple at ute clubs and festivals. With his wonderful, hard-working wife Lydia by his side, Daniel is always challenging himself creatively, as evidenced by his successful forays into world music and instrument design. He is without a doubt one of the most inspiring and helpful people I know, and it's a real privilege to call him my friend. I hope you enjoy our chat. Daniel Ho, it's nice to see you. Uh, Aloha Cameron, thanks for having me on your show. Always a pleasure to chat to you. I mean, you've been a good friend of mine for a long time now, since about 2005, I think it is. Yes, I remember very well you contacting me uh, before my tour down to Tasmania for a festival called 10 Days on the Island. And we stopped at Sydney and saw you first, huh? That's it. Yeah, just by pure chance. And then uh, we were fast friends, really. So it's been fantastic knowing you all this time. And, you know, hopefully we'll know each other for a lot longer, too. Yes, however long we last. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Not to get too dark. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's start with the obvious. How has the pandemic affected you and your work? Uh, have you developed any lockdown hobbies as well? Yeah, I, I saw you doing a lot of gardening around the place. Well, let's see. The pandemic for me, I guess it started in March. I came back from a wonderful tour through Brunei and Thailand with the U.S. Embassy. And as we were returning, they were countries were starting to close. So our flights got rerouted and we managed to make it home just in time. And then the lockdown began and uh, it was surreal. Uh, One by one, I watched all my performances and my entire schedule evaporate. Uh, And I thought, oh boy, well, okay, well, then I'll do what I usually do for half of the year. I spend half my year at home recording anyway, so... I'm usually by myself for half the year and the other half we're out promoting the projects we make. So I thought, okay, let me just dive right into a solo record and bide my time until this is all over. So I thought it was going to be all over when I finished my record because, you know, that would be ideal. (laughs) So I finished the record in about five months or so, uh, an album called Playing Through Changes, which I thought was an appropriate title because 
in jazz music, playing through changes means you play the music. Hey, let's just play through the changes. So you just play the chords and play the rhythm and kind of go through the song without melody, playing through changes. And what I was trying to do was just buy my time by playing music while the world stopped revolving. So I finished the record and uh, it things just kind of got worse. And in the meantime, I had been thinking very carefully and talking to people and trying to figure out which direction the music industry would take because there was no such thing as you know live performance um, people started to do more things online i saw some live concerts and teaching and workshops on zoom and so on and i stayed away from it for about six months and then i realized that i i probably need to get into video production so uh around july and august i have a a dear friend who is my mentor, David Ho. Uh, our parents were family friends in Hawaii. We grew up playing music together and moved to Los Angeles together to pursue our career in music. And he taught me how to audio engineer decades ago. And I have you know, worked on that skill for as long. And uh, he went off. He's kind of a genius. He does things on his own. He figures everything out and just... Anyway, so he got into a post-production and he owns a post-production business and he's been doing that for decades. And uh, we did a video together called Toccata for Piano and Five Cellos with a great cellist, Dana Shue. And David filmed it and he edited it. And in the process, he had me involved, hands-on in the editing. And he was explaining to me how he was filming, how he was lighting, using smoke machines. And, and uh, I took a crash course in Final Cut Pro and got a bunch of camera and lighting gear. And I have since fallen in love with video production. Going forward, it seems like it's going to be quite valuable for musicians to present and share their music online. And it's no longer enough just to send a sound sample to someone. Uh, they want to see visuals uh, to go with it. And, you know, to tell your story with visuals, it, it enhances the song if you do it well. So that's pretty much what I've been doing since. Um, I filmed a live concert at the East West Players Theater, and I'm working on putting that together and releasing uh, my very first live CD. Oh, nice. Uh, with my band, and Halau Hula Kieli Ionalani. My first live CD in my entire career, 30 years. Wow. <laughs> Excited about that. And um, so working on the video, you know, the visuals uh, to support it and so on. And yeah, that's kind of the direction I've taken and really enjoying learning. Uh, the other part of the pandemic that's so wonderful is when life has got you going and you're into your routine and you're doing the same things year after year, like going out on tour, going here and going there, and you don't take time to evaluate what you're doing and why you're doing it. Mm. So what the pandemic did for us was it kind of stopped us in our tracks and say, hey, you know, what you're doing, is this what you really want to be doing? Should you be taking a different direction? Do you need to take some time off to learn something new, a new skill to help your career evolve in a different way? And so I'm appreciative for, you know, this situation for, for those things. Yeah. Well, the one thing that's always impressed the heck out of me about you is apart from being an amazing player you're also a producer an arranger a composer an audio engineer and now a video editor uh, 
my question is why why do you choose to do all of these things yourself that's a loaded question for which i have an answer because <laughs> i i just did a, a class on this um my friend steve sano is at uh, Stanford, and he had me speak to his class about being an independent musician. And there are two reasons. Uh, one of them is very personal. I believe that happiness has a lot to do with, you know, kind of doing what you want when you feel like doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's kind of, a, kind of a neat way to live. I mean, it sounds idealistic, and it's taken me 20-something years to kind of get to a spot in my life where I you know, I can just do original music and do songs that I love and just release them. Prior to that, I was on a record label when I first started. And not only did the person tell me what kinds of songs to write, he would title my songs. So that's an extreme example of what artists go through early on in their career. They call it paying your dues. You know, the, all the money gets filtered through the record company, through publishers, through managers, through agents, taking 10, 20 percent of everything. And then you know, as it goes through everyone's bank account and it ends up with the artist, you're like, uh, uh, I can't pay my rent. So there's all of that. So the business side of it, right, the artistic side of it, the personal side of it, being happy. And artistically, if you're told what to do, you're not really an artist. You're kind of, you know, not doing what you truly believe in. So for those reasons, I just thought the only way to be able to make my own choices is to pay for it myself. So... I started a record company, I started a publishing company, I paid for my own records. Then I realized, ooh, I don't have enough money to pay for it myself. Because a graphic designer costs thousands of dollars, a photographer costs thousands of dollars, audio engineer costs thousands of dollars. Going into a recording studio, you spend $25,000, $40,000 on an album, you know, and then you got to make it back. So the equation just didn't work out. Fortunately for me, when I was starting my label, the internet was becoming you know the place right a way for us to form a relationship directly with our fans we don't need the marketing and promotions and radio stations and all the middle people who affect whether or not you're going to get any visibility at all i can just get on the internet danielhole.com here i am here's my stuff you know do a gig go go to danielhole.com you can buy my stuff so that was a big deal from 95 i got website danielhole.com and technology was also at a point in the music industry where you could record an album at home and make it sound pretty close to a recording studio and and do it on an ADAT which is an Alesis VHS cassette eight track recorder digital recorder that worked great and now you know technology is such that you can make it sound every bit as good at home in a bedroom like yours, as you can in a full-on studio, because I have the Ocean Way modeling <laughs> room in my Universal Audio system, and I can basically have my vocals in Ocean Way if I want, hmm. you know, where Michael Jackson and Frank Sinatra recorded. <laughs> yeah, wow. And it works. So it's empowering technology. You know, this little Apple computer has allowed me to just work at home. It's given me the artistic freedom. I don't check my end product with anyone i just when it's ready and it's done then i just release it and being able to take your own pictures and do your own graphic design you can make it look the way you want and doing video you know the same allows you to present it the way you want of course there's a huge learning curve in every one of these aspects right but it also keeps life interesting because you're always learning there's always something new to learn in any one of these areas so it's it's a lot of fun 
Mm. And I, it keeps me excited every day. Well, it, it sounds like, I mean, and it obviously must have been quite a, a struggle when you started, when you decided, I'm going to be a professional musician. Uh, was there any, any time when you thought, I can't do this, I have to, you know, get another job? No, because uh, when I started, okay, so 2020 was my 30th year in music. And when I started, I told myself that I will not do anything outside of music because I felt that any minute that I spent outside of my goal or my career was taking time away from my development. I needed to be doing, and it could be peripheral things. I, you know, I've orchestrated for films, played keyboards in bands, played bass in bands. I've done all these different things, but it always related to music in some way. And so my skill and my time, all those hours I spent, some, it contributed mm. to, the, to the goal. Uh, so I w- would do whatever it takes to, even if it didn't pay as much as, you know, working in a fine dining restaurant or something, I knew it was valuable to me in some way. So I, I've held true to that from the very beginning. I haven't done anything else. And my teacher, Ray Wessinger, in high school told me, actually in seventh grade, he told me, if you want to be a musician, you have to do whatever I say. And one of the most important things he said to me was, you have to be versatile, which means you have to play bass. If there's no job for a guitar player, you have to be able to write music because you need to create. You have to be able to arrange and work in any genre. You have to, you know, so I did. I, I tried to learn classical music, jazz music, and there's always, you know, something to do. And so I, I haven't really felt that way and I probably busied myself uh, for example when I don't have a gig or a job coming in I'm working on my own record so I'll pretty much work every single day uh, all the time and trying to realize something and I this year has given me time to really think carefully about what how it is I want to spend my time so I just keep going and try to enjoy it when did you actually decide I would like to be a musician like, this is the life for me. Uh, in elementary school, I surfed five days a week in Waikiki at Walls, which is right across the zoo. My dad would take me every day after work. And I would be either lying on my boogie board or sitting on my boogie board between sets or my surfboard as I got older. And I remember this specifically. You know, I would look out at the sunset and just think like, wow, you know, I want to be a professional musician. But how? What do I do? Well, certainly surfing wasn't going to help that. <laughs> I spent way too much time doing that. So I'm not a great player. I should have been like all the other kids, you know, two hours, four hours a day on the piano after school. I should have, but, you know, hindsight. But I didn't know how, but I knew I wanted to. And I didn't have anything else in mind. I sort of trapped myself by saying I'm going to go to a music school, the Grove School of Music after high school and not go to a university and develop any sort of skills in any other areas <laughs> whatsoever. So I, you know, I locked myself in there from the age of 18, probably. And you know, if you love something, if you love it, like if you're passionate about it, you're just gonna do it because you love it. You want to do it, you know, and, and if you're singular about it, laser focused, like this is all I'm gonna do. And this is all I want to do. You can do it. And it really is more about perseverance than anything else like I wasn't exceptionally talented growing up but you know 
if you spend 30 years doing something, you, you get a little better each time. <laughs> so, you know. All right. Well, let, let's zeroing in on the ukulele then. What's your earliest ukulele memory? My earliest ukulele memory was playing a song for Anna, walking around the house. I had a kamaka, a concert ukulele that my dad bought for me, and I would walk around the house and play a song for Anna. In my circle around the house, I'd walk down the hallway, and there's a mirror at the end of the hallway. And I remember walking, playing ukulele, and I'd look up, and I'd see myself in the mirror, and I thought, wow, I'm pretty cool. And then I'd go around through the kitchen, then I'd walk by the front door, back around down the hallway, and it's like, oh, there I am again. <laughs> but I, I really did that like for hours, and it's the only song I knew how to play for like two years. But that's my earliest memory. Well, what do you like most about the ukulele? What I love most about the ukulele is you can take it with you everywhere. That, to me, is what makes it so special. It doesn't have the range of a piano, but you can put an ukulele on and walk around the yard, walk around the house, take a walk, you know, and sit in the car while your wife is shopping in a mall and just be totally entertained and productive. You could write, you could practice difficult passages that you couldn't play. You know, they say put in your 10,000 hours. Well, I think it's easier on an ukulele than on any other instrument. I play piano and I stare at the same wall for hours and days and days and days and hours and, and it, the view never changes. <laughs> and one of my things about playing ukulele, like I, I do it happy hour. Like if we're gonna go to a restaurant back in the day when we could go to a restaurant, I would always take my ukulele and I would jam along to whatever lounge music was playing and take solos or I'd work on a passage or do something. And then I would eat with my right hand because if you eat with your left hand, you have to keep wiping it and your fingers get greasy from the fries or whatever. And you can't really play. But if you do it with your right hand, it's just, you know, you can touch the strings and you don't touch the instrument at all. So I got that part down. I practice at the airport. I practice on the train, on the plane. And making music is very different from just listening to music. You feel the vibration against your body. And I would say I probably spend more time on the ukulele than any other instrument by far. Speaking of your growing up in Hawaii, you also grew up with Tia Carrera. Can you tell us about your connection with her and the collaborations you've done? Well, it all started when she had this massive crush on me. Or was it the other way around? Hmm, I can't remember. It's so long ago, you know. <laughs> well, okay, so Ray Wessinger was my band director in high school. Uh, he was the former assistant director of music at MGM, Metro Goldwyn and Mayer, where they did these big musicals. He worked with the Beatles. He played in Stan Kenton's band. He retired to Hawaii and became St. Louis High School band director. And he brought all his stories with him. He'd talk about that golden era of music where people wrote music on onion skin paper to copy it. And they arranged for big band and orchestra, conducted things live and... That's why I got so interested in music. And um, he started a band called the Lancers, which is a big band at St. Louis High School. And he was teaching me how to write for big band. And at the time, Linda Ronstadt's album, Lush Life, was incredibly popular. Nelson Riddle was a very famous arranger that did all her, her orchestrations. And I was studying that with Mr. Wessinger. And then I did arrangements for I've Got a Crush on You and Someone to Watch Over Me, which is by... Gershwin and um, we needed a singer 
And so Tia uh, had been entering uh, talent shows uh, at that time. She went to Sacred Hearts Academy, which is two blocks away from St. Louis, both Catholic schools. St. Louis was an all-boys school. Sacred Hearts was an all-girls school. So we asked Tia, I asked Tia, hey, you want to come and sing these songs? And she loves Linda Ronstadt. I mean, she can kind of sing like her as well. And she did. And she was the singer in the Lancet Jazz Band. And we would do gigs at like officers clubs and play at a mall or something like that. And I was a freshman and she was a junior. And that was when we first started playing together. And we've done four albums, you know, since then. And uh, done a lot together and a number of performances. And she's still a very dear friend. Excellent. Can you describe the experience of winning your first Grammy? I won my first Grammy in 2005. The year we met? Yes. It was before we met, right? Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, it was in 2005. And I wasn't even a member of the Recording Academy, which is uh, the Grammy organization. I got a fax one day for an enormous number of CDs <laughs> from a distributor. And I thought, this is a mistake. So I called the distributor and said, oh, I think you made a mistake. You know, you probably don't want this many. He said, oh, no, we do. Uh, you just got nominated for a, a Grammy. Ooh, really? Are you kidding? And, you know, I do all of my music at home. You know, in it's not even a recording studio. It's a bedroom, you know, that I just have my recording stuff in. And I did not think the Grammys were anything that you could do in a bedroom. <laughs> So it didn't register to me. I thought it was, you know, major labels, you know, Warner Brothers, Virgin, whatever, you know, those big artists won Grammys. So we got nominated and won for the next year, six years. It's just albums that I did at home, recorded them, engineered them, and some of them were done in Hawaii, recorded live at George Kahumoku Jr.'s Hawaiian Slacky Guitar Show in Maui. And it was a, an exciting time and a great honor because it, you know, it really changed my career and allowed me to do all different kinds of things like world music projects in Mongolia and China and Taiwan and work with rock people like Takmatsumoto and, and Pepe Romero Sr. and things like that. So re feel very lucky. When I interviewed you for Kami Ukulele magazine in, in 2011, you told me your six Grammys were in your closet because you'd rather look forward to the future than back at the past and old achievements. Has that changed? Yes, it has, because now that I'm over the hill. <laughs> <laughs> you did think in that interview as well that, yeah, you'd look at them when you're old and gray, but you don't look too gray. I am, actually. I dye my hair. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm over the hill. Now, actually, the real reason is I, I still feel like I have more things that I want to do in music. I feel like I've kind of written, as far as on the composing side, I've kind of written all the songs that I want to write. Now my time is spent more on sharing those songs, learning how to play them, and, you know, getting them out there. But what brought the Grammys out of the closet was a video. Now uh, working online and doing these video projects, uh, you know, it's kind of important to have uh, practical lighting and props. <laughs> so I keep them covered, you know, but when it, you know when we film things you know sometimes I'll, I'll take them out and put them in a shot especially if it's kind of like a commercial or something to promote a online lesson series or something like that yeah well you gotta use what you've got 
as you say, you've collaborated with many great artists over the years, including classical guitar maestro Pepe Romero. Uh, who else inspires you now? Who else inspires me? I've always been a fan of James Taylor. I love the sincerity in his writing, his storytelling, and uh, Dave Grusin. I love his film scores, his, his music, his rhythmic sense, his harmonies, and he's just a wonderful composer. Uh, Bach, I use his, you know, 18th century harmony choral writing techniques in pretty much everything that I do in all my voicings. And it's something you study in classical music in school. And um, I just, I love the sound that it creates. Uh, the Beatles, of course, you know. Um, but yeah, I think my greatest inspiration right now, I would say, is world music. I had the opportunity in the last 10 years to work with Taiwanese Aboriginal musicians, uh, Chinese opera musicians, Mongolian musicians. I find so much inspiration in these melodies, these traditional melodies that don't follow any Western structure. The rules and regulations that we come up with, these European ideas like I just mentioned with Bach, uh, it has nothing to do with the way that they use melody to tell stories and to convey emotion. I feel like world music is kind of its purest, most organic way of connecting sound to emotion. And I draw a lot from different world music cultures and put them together in my original music. I think the song Napana Elua, the two heartbeats, is everything that I love about music in one song. It, it's based on an Indian polyrhythm of 10 and a half beats over seven and I use uh, udu, which is an African percussion instrument, and ipuheke to play the basic beat, a gogo bell to do a partido alto rhythm, which is a traditional samba rhythm, but it's in an Indian 10 and a half over seven polyrhythm framework, uh, classical melodic techniques to compose the melody, jazz harmonies to make the harmony, and um, did it all in ukulele. And, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, why do I do everything myself. Well, there is no record company on earth that would pay you money to spend months writing something like that because it has zero commercial value. One would think, or I should say an A&R person might think, it has no value. But actually it does because personally, if you believe in something that much and you present it on stage, you know, and tell the story about it and this is everything that I love about music, here's the song it does have a lot of value and which I've done for years. I've been playing this song and I explain it in, in just that way. And it's become like a signature song for me, like pineapple mango, the simple three chord song that people play all over. And it's just a fun, happy song. The other end of the spectrum is Napana Elua, which for, you know, people that are really into the intricacies of music might find that interesting as well. So, uh, I would have never had that opportunity. And so I'm very lucky that, you know, in the small way that I do things, and I mean really small, uh, you know, this piece exists. And that's in itself is so rewarding. For the past few years, you've been working with Pepe Romero's son, Pepe Romero Jr., on his Romero Creations line of instruments. How did that partnership come about? And uh, can you tell us a bit about your part in all of that? A mutual friend of mine and Pepe's, his name is Kevin Kinnear, told Pepe, like, oh, you got to meet 
this guy Daniel, he's an ukulele player, and you gotta show him your ukuleles. This is probably nine years ago. He started building ukuleles. And prior to that, Pepe is a very famous classical guitar luthier. Uh, and the Romero family is, you know, the royal family of classical guitar. So it took us about two and a half months. He lives in San Diego and I live in Los Angeles to actually get together. And one day he showed up at my door with four ukuleles. They were all tenor ukuleles. And uh, he came in. He's very gracious, very polite. And he came in and um, he said, I like you try my instrument. So we went to the living room. Just right by the front door. I sat down on the floor. He sat down on the floor. I don't really have any furniture. And uh, I started playing these ukuleles. I didn't say a word for like 10 minutes. I just picked up one. I played it, tuned it, picked up another one, you know, tuned and played it. And I played all four. And they were the four best ukuleles I've ever played in my whole life. And uh, my background is in classical guitar. Or part of my background is in classical guitar. I studied it for five years when I was nine years old. And so I'm always looking for a classical guitar tone. A ukulele is nylon strings and a body, like a miniature classical guitar. Pepe comes from, you know, building concert guitars for like the highest level performer. And he did just that. He miniaturized his designs and built these amazing instruments. And the one that really stood out to me was a spruce top Brazilian rosewood back and sides ukulele. Well, anyway, after I was silent for 10 minutes, played all four ukuleles, I told him these are the best ukuleles I've ever played in my whole life. I mean, just, just did. And he was like, oh, I thought you hated them because <laughs> you didn't say anything. <laughs> and he said, if you, and I said, which one do you like? I said, well, I love this one. And he said, well, it's yours. And from that day forward, I think about nine years ago, I don't remember exactly, Every single recording I've ever done has been on that one instrument. And there's nothing like it. I mean, I shouldn't say there's nothing like it. There's a lot of them now because Pepe's built a number of handmade instruments. And that's how our relationship started. And I would say to this day, we still talk about four times a week, going over ideas, thinking of new things. We've designed in my signature line, the tiny tenor and five instruments, baritone size, six strings that plays like a guitar, a ST concert, which you play, which is a tiny tenor body with a concert scale and uh, excess soprano and a six string tiny tenor. And it's been an amazing dimension to, you know how we talked about earlier, like I'm only going to do things in music. I'm not going to do anything that has nothing to do with music. Well, this has been, you know, front and center. It's like writing a song with wood. Yeah, beautiful. Do you have a favorite instrument at the moment or is it still that Pepe custom? As far as my instruments go, I perform with a spalted mango tiny tenor, which has a pickup in it. I record with a handmade tenor, that one that I mentioned, and I perform with a Diho six string, which is a large version of a tiny tenor body. And it's the size of a baritone ukulele, but it has six strings. So it tunes exactly like a guitar, but it fits in an overhead on an airplane. And it's so easy to carry around. And it has a big sound because of the body shape, which is based on a lute, it doesn't have that um, overabundance of mid-range frequencies that travel guitars and small guitar bodies have because the sound is not choked by the waist. It's a, just this beautiful, full sound. The scale is 21 inches, very compact size. And it, to me, that's like a dream come true to be able to tour and carry on a guitar and not worry about checking it in and so on. So those are the instruments that I'm just 
in love with. And I, I wish I had this D-hole six string like 20 years ago because it would have made touring a lot easier. <laughs> What's your best playing tip? If it was just one thing you could tell someone, what would it be? If there was one thing that I could say to a player, I would say play with sincerity. Music is a way of communicating emotion, feeling. It doesn't have to be fast and it doesn't have to be loud. It can be just sincere and simple. Or if sincere to you is fast and loud, that's also sincerity. Through world music, particularly the Taiwu Ancient Ballads Troupe, which is this children's Aboriginal choir in Taiwan, a Taiwan tribe, uh, I learned that you don't need to know anything about music to make someone cry, to make someone feel deeply emotional. And that is what I'm trying to get to, to that point where all the technical parts of music and sound, the chords, the groove, the structure and everything, they're all important, but they're not necessary. So I would just say, you know, communicate with sincerity. It's just like the way you speak to someone. Fantastic tip. Similarly, then, do you have any advice for songwriters? For songwriters, yes. I think what helps me the most in songwriting is uh, to learn about music. That is so important. Of course you can write a song using the chords that you already know or playing C, A minor, F, and G. And you can write beautiful songs with just three chords and catchy songs and so on. But um, your palette of colors are limited by your knowledge of music. So if you're painting with RGB, red, green, and blue, then you know, you're using primary colors and you can you know, communicate with this vocabulary or lexicon or whatever you'd call it. But if you really understand harmony, you can come up with every shade of orange uh, or red or, or blues, cyans and magentas and all these subtleties. The more you understand about music, the more tools you have to create very specific emotions. In the same way with words, if you have a 50-word vocabulary, you can say so much. Uh, so I would suggest learning as much about music and also studying composition techniques, melodic development techniques that they use in classical music. Well, back in the day, Sherman Brothers or Gershwin, you know, people that studied music wrote this way. It's a small world by the Sherman Brothers. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. They took a theme. It's a small world after all. And they used diatonic transposition up a whole step. Diatonic means within the scale. It's a small world after all. Or Beethoven. Da-da-da-da. Diatonic transposition down a whole step. Da-da-da-da. And you will never have writer's block. And there's only a handful of techniques you need to learn about diatonic transposition, inversion, inversion, retrograde, uh, augmentation, diminution. There's just a handful of techniques. To master them, of course, takes many, many years because there's so many things that you can do with those techniques. But you will never have writer's block. And your music will have coherence. It'll reference a theme. It won't just be a bunch of notes that like, why did you go there? Or surprise the listener, you know. There'll be a certain amount of predictability to your music and structure. Of course, being too literal is predictable and boring, right? So there's some balance of all of that, but you can take a literal diatonic transposition of a melody or theme and you can harmonize it in different ways. I did a program with Yamaha, uh, an ukulele program, and in it I taught everything that I know about music through the ukulele. And 
I took, for example, the note C on the ukulele and harmonized it with 52 chords. Um, you know, this, as an example, but it's the lesson started at the very beginning. If you've never touched an instrument, I talk about woods and all the things that I learned from Pepe, but it also goes through polyrhythms and all the advanced stuff and all the different scales and so on. So it's designed to be like years long program that you can spend, you know, diving into and owning the material. So there's, there's a difference between knowing about something and owning it. Owning it means you can play it in 12 keys. And you can rattle off the top of your head without even thinking about it or come up with 15 different diatonic transpositions of a theme. That's owning that technique. Knowing about it means, oh, that's a diatonic transposition, you know. <laughs> but to, you know, to master that technique is, you know, a, a lot of practice. So the, the lesson is called Musician's Creativity Lab. And the website is musicians.online. I'll put some uh, links to that under the interview as well, along with your website and everything else we need couple of music business questions just to finish off i guess what's your opinion on music streaming you know is it taking over from cds or cds completely gone you think i think cds are on their way out business wise however the quality of a cd recorded at 44.1 kilohertz 16 bit is still the highest commercial resolution available Things that are sent online are usually compressed in some MP3 or AC or some format, which compromises the audio. So in my iPhone, I have 24-bit 44.1 audio files. It takes a lot of memory, but I don't want to train my ears to get used to listening to a compressed resolution. It is not obvious unless you listen in really good headphones and you can hear every detail, especially on the tails of reverbs when things get really quiet. And 24-bit is even better than 16-bit. So I have the original masters, uh, which I do in 24-bit on my phone. So CDs commercially are kind of almost completely gone. And we know that because computers don't have CD players in them anymore, nor do cars. But it's still the best quality audio commercially available. Streaming, I don't do because the equation to me doesn't make sense. So my main job is a composer. I create intellectual property. And when I started, you know, the revenue from CD sales and from, you know, airplay, all the different TV licensing and things like that was substantial enough to live on. Now, if you get a million plays on Spotify, whatever, you get a hundred dollar check. There are very few people that can just say, oh, yeah, I live off my Spotify royalties. <laughs> Who does that? I mean, you know, so I, I don't support it because the equation doesn't add up for me. So I don't want anything to do with it. And I can do without the $20 check or something like that once a year. I think some of my stuff, my music got on there through compilations or other record companies licensing things and then putting up the compilations. But I personally don't do that. I sell on iTunes and only iTunes. It's something that I started with long ago, like when iTunes first started, like maybe within the first year or two. And I've just stuck with them and I'm very happy working with them. That's that's pretty much all I do. I danielho.com, which I started around the mid 90s, uh, and we sell our sheet music and books and shirts and CDs and everything else there. And on iTunes we sell our music. And that's pretty much all I do. What about the resurgence in vinyl? Do we see a Daniel Ho record at any point? I have one uh, that I did with Takmatsumoto, Electric Island Acoustic C, and it's available on vinyl. 
and it's a really cool looking piece the, the artwork you know to see it that big 12 by 12 like wow that's so cool i i haven't really been into into doing that i still press cds in very small runs because i sell cds at at gigs and you know something to sign and but i you know i haven't on our own label done any vinyl well you're talking there well you, you've been mentioning our business and the way we do things and that other person is lydia of course how big a uh, part of the business is lydia Oh, we have this enormous record publishing company <laughs> and she's 50% of it and I'm the other half. And that's the other joy of doing things on your own. Other than Lydia, like, well, she tells me what to do. Well, someone has to tell you what to do. Yeah, but other than that, you know, we kind of just do what we feel like doing, what we're, what we're inspired to do. And it's, it's so easy. It's not a very long approval process. And, and it's nice just not to have to go through that bureaucracy, you know, so keeps things simple. Yeah, that's the way to go. And uh, might I just say that you, both you and Lydia have inspired me since 2005. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. All right. Final question then. What does the ukulele mean to you? The ukulele is something I've lived with my entire life. It's uh, my second instrument. My first instrument was organ. You know, I put it down for a very long time, maybe a couple decades. Uh, while I went on to study different things like writing and piano and guitar and so on and picked it back up and it is my passion. I I love it. I love uh, designing instruments to see, you know, people playing them on stage and in videos and things like that, like to see you performing your music and know that in some small way that I and Pepe were a part of, you know, you uh, realizing your music and sharing your music it, it means the world to me and uh, I just get more and more excited about that and just seeing where it goes from here um, ukuleles are doing better than ever um, Doug Reynolds told me that the ukulele was the number one selling instrument during the Great Depression in America and we're kind of going through a hard time now and people are at home and picking up hobbies and uh, the ukulele is just taking off all over again so it's it's exciting to see and and it's been keeping me company as well and so i'd say yeah it means a lot to me <laughs> me too well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me daniel it's been a real joy oh thank you cameron it's it's always nice to to chat and i'm sorry i'm so long-winded that's okay well you're not for a start everything you say is sage advice i think all right, well, take it easy, and uh, hopefully I'll get to actually see you in person at some point, maybe next year, hopefully. All right. Bye. Mr. Daniel Ho. Please subscribe to Ukulele Stories on your preferred platform so you never miss an episode, and give us a rating if you're enjoying the series. To take us out, here's a lovely song called With All the Stars, the first track on Daniel's latest album, Playing Through Changes. Until next time, stay safe. Keep on smiling and keep on strumming. i
Thank you.